I'm back. You missed me, I know. It is my very great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker this morning, Pastor Scott Henning. To some of you, his face will be new, but to a lot of us, it's like a welcome homecoming. Uh, Scott was our pastor here for nearly 30 years, and we are so grateful for his heart and leadership over those years, um, and especially to have him back with us today while our current staff is out of the area. Um, would you please give him one more warm welcome? Thank you. Well, first, let me just say that Christy and I have met your pastor, Matt, and his wife, Amber, and Zoe. We've had coffee with them individually and together and dinner with them. And you are really blessed and privileged to have them as your pastor. Um, and it, it's my honor and privilege to be back with you here today. Are you ever um, surprised at how quickly some modern things become obsolete? My cell phone, it's an iPhone 4, is now six, six generations obsolete. It was obsolete when I bought it from Craigslist because I'm too cheap to buy a new one. <laughs> At the same time, there are some ancient things that are still relevant. So, for example, they tell me that we make 20% more wine today than ever before. And winemaking is probably one of the more ancient crafts still in existence. Do you know that history records show that they made wine in China in 9000 B.C.? That's a long time ago. I guess it was kind of chunky like soup, but it still made you happy. So they liked it. Anyhow. But, but crafts all have different parts to them. They're, they're a process. Um, and in, in like any other craft, there is one this morning that is ancient, but that I'd like to talk to you about. And in, we'll call it the craft of soul care. The ancients called this curing the soul. My grandma cured pickles. That means she canned them. She cooked them and put them in a a can with a lid on it, and it got sealed, and then you had to let them sit for a time, and they went from cucumbers to pickles. And in the same kind of thinking, the, the thinking behind the craft of soul care is that I'm going to move from being a natural human being to being someone whose life is Christ-like. The goal, the new goal of every Christian, having been freed and forgiven, is now to become like Christ. And so this craft of soul care is the part we take up. The, the second part. Christ has done the first part. And that part's finished. But we take up this part of curing our soul, of this process of becoming like Christ. And so it happens as we live our lives listening and responding to God. Well, having said that, I want to talk about just a little bit. There are three parts to this craft, okay? And uh, three skills or parts that we practice. And the first is Bible reading. The second is 
unbusy, quiet moments. And the third is sacred partners or companions. Let me, there's, there's two things that I need to tell you about those three things, though. First is that none of these three practices will happen in our lives if we don't schedule them. So if you keep your schedule on your smartphone, or if you keep it on your calendar and your wall, I don't care, but however you schedule your life, if you don't schedule these three things, I guarantee they won't happen. And in fact, our lives are so neurotic that our schedules, even days of the week, change, right? So probably it's likely, especially if you have school children at home, Monday through Friday are different days than Saturday and Sunday. And the school year is different than the summer. And for each of those changes, you will have to be intentional in your scheduling, or it will not happen. The second tool you'll need, besides your schedule, is some way to... Uh, have the scriptures handy, and you, like me, might have them on your phone as well. Or, um, and, and you're going to need a way to take notes. And you, like me, might keep them on your note page on your phone as well. So you might be able to just get along with your phone. Or you might want a notebook and a pencil and a Bible. Okay, so three skills to practice, a couple of tools, your schedule, and, and the tools to have with you. So having said all that as Bible introduction, let's jump in to looking at those three skills. So the first one is Bible reading. And would you, would you read the scripture with me this morning? It's there on the wall, so we can see it together. So let's read this verse from Joshua 1.8. And don't for a minute let this book of the Revelation be out of mind. Ponder and meditate on it day and night, making sure you practice everything written in it. Wow. So, um, so let's just unpack this scripture just for a little minute in Bible reading, because don't for a minute let it be out of mind. Ponder and meditate on it, and then making sure you practice, all right? Those, key, those are key words in that passage and ones that will guide us as we think about this first skill in the craft of curing our souls. Reading. Um, once in a while, actually most days of the week, I get to go to transitional kindergarten in the morning. And if you've ever been to kindergarten, the teachers run, read very fun, colorful stories. But you don't have to be in school very long to realize that reading requires something. And that is that you collect certain information, and it better be the right information because there's going to be a test. And so we train ourselves to read for information and a test as Western schooled people. And all of us here are Western schooled people, I think. We've gotten that training. And so we read and we approach reading in a certain way. Um, I want to encourage you that reading the Bible is really different than that. Not that we don't get information, but that's not the purpose of reading the Bible. The purpose in reading your Bible isn't to fill in blanks. It's to transform our living. Um, and that is a really big difference. Because most of our reading, we don't ever expect to have to somehow practice it. In fact, you know, when I think of learning in the sense of being Christian learners, I don't think of the academic model as I do more of the apprentice model. 
We're really reading to be apprentices, to learn how to put to practice what we've paid attention to in the scriptures. So Bible reading, um, it's not academic, it's relational. And it has a relationship both in your relationship with God, because as you read the scriptures, I invite you to consider that you have heard God speak to you. As you read the scriptures, it's not necessarily, it is information about God. It might be information about the early church. It might be information about the people of Israel. But more than that, every time we approach the Bible, we approach it with the anticipation that there we're going to find and meet God. And we're going to hear a word from him. But in we, as you do that, you see your relationship with God also then says something about your relationship to this word spoken to you. Because our relationship to God is always one where we are, our goal is to become like the Lord. You know, this is a hard thing for us Baptists because you say, oh, well, Scott, that's max of works. No, it doesn't at all. We're confident that Christ died for our sins and we're forgiven. The penalty and the punishment is over. But now, having that freedom, our life goal is to live each day, every moment, every decision like Christ. We're to go be Jesus for our world here and now today. And that is the process of uh, that we're in as we read the scriptures and as we begin to meditate and contemplate and then live them. So what does that look like? My grandpa was a dairy farmer and he had cows. And if you know anything about cows, they chew their grass and they swallow it a little bit and then they spit it back up and they chew it some more. And that really is the concept of meditation. And so in meditation, um, on the scripture, we contemplate God's word. We understand that it's written for us to be digested into our living, into our daily practice, into our decisions. And so I'm open to God, to his authority over my life, to, his, to the, the authority of the word over my life as, as a follower of Christ now. I accept it even though I recognize intellectually it was written in another time, in another culture, I accept it as being spoken to me for this moment. And even if I'm reading about the Israelites, or I'm reading about God and his character, and I don't even see in this reading today something that speaks, you know, really practically to me, like be a peacemaker, okay? It says something about the character of God, that God is sovereign, or that God is just, or that God is compassionate, that God is merciful, or that I begin to say, well, if that's what God looks like, then what is God saying to how I'm supposed to look? And so even when the scriptures aren't directly like sound practical, they are practical, because I'm coming to know who God is, and as I come to know who God is, I come to know who I am becoming. It's spoken to me. It saturates my living. And you see, 
though it's great for us to be busy in our Bible studies and our books, filling in the blanks isn't the end. How I live it is my goal. What's the end goal of your Bible? That's really the question when it comes to Bible reading. What's the end goal of my reading? Is it for me to know information? Is it for me to be, you know, to be the best Bible quiz winner? No, 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 no. I've read today to be in relationship with God and his word as it saturates my living. And as day to day, I'm in relationship with people and I'm making decisions. All right, so you're going to see that the three parts, Bible reading, quiet, unbusy moments, and soul companions are like puzzle pieces. They fit together really tightly and even overlap at points. So we better go on as we go from Bible reading. But there's one last thing here. I want to I um, quote um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might know the name. He was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor in German, Nazi Germany, was executed. But he wrote these words, know the scriptures because it is not our heart that determines our course, but the word of God. Now, that sounds really simple. But if you are like me and you think about an average day, I would say it's my heart. What do we mean by that word? My will my thinking, my feelings, my emotions, you know, right? My wants. Those are the things that drives my day, right? Don't they drive your day? They drive our day. And that's natural for us, but we're choosing something new. And that is to let something else determine our course. You know, we could live our whole lives letting our heart determine our course. But we've decided that we want God's word to determine our course. That's huge. But it takes incredible intentionality on our part to let God's words speak into our day, to saturate our living. That's the goal of Bible reading. Okay, well, partnered with that then is quiet, unbusy moments. And once again, I invite you to read aloud with me the scriptures. I didn't say that very clearly the first time. Um, So, would you read this scripture? This is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, and it's Jesus' words to his disciples, who you and I are, right? here, Here it is. Let's read together. Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. Then... Focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense his grace. Okay, so on busy, quiet moments. Now, when I talk about quiet, uh, I'm really not talking about going to the library where you have to whisper. I'm talking about what's going on in your inner person. Now, I don't know about you, but my inner person is always noisy. I'm thinking about what I want for lunch. I'm thinking about the ball game that's going to start in a while. I'm thinking about, I don't know if there is one starting or not, but anyway. I'm thinking about um, the conversation I had with somebody yesterday. I'm thinking about the last advertisement I saw on the TV for that thing I know I have to have now and I can't live without. I'm thinking about... um, the argument I had with my wife yesterday and how I'm feeling bad about that. I'm thinking about, oh man, 
It goes on and on and on, doesn't it? And you see, if you're like me, my mind is so noisy all the time. And it's so noisy, I can't hear God's words spoken to me. Because they're being crowded out. So this idea of solitude, as the ancients called it, or unbusy quiet moments, as we're going to call it, is this intentional time of quieting my inside, my inner person, so that I can hear so that I can listen, that I can give attention to what God's trying to say to me. Well, um, I think this, is, um, this may be one of the more difficult, well, in its own way. Each of the three practices I'm going to talk to you about today are difficult in their own way. This is difficult because we are Westerners. And in Western society, to be unbusy is to be useless. And that is just wrong. And so this goes against the very culture around us. I mean, my goodness, people, we are the busiest people in the world. And any downtime, there's got to be something. You know, if the TV is on, if, my, if I don't have screen time, you know, the average adult in America has nine hours of screen time a day. Oh, my goodness, it's, we're busy. So the thought of putting that all down, and having unbusy, quiet moments, that, that alone is, is a huge hurdle for us. But it's one I invite you to, well, and one Jesus invites us to. So getting quiet before God. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, I think, I think first of all, it does require a place. Um, and the place has got to be Something that doesn't have your, things that are distractions for you. And your place may be different than my place. But it's got to be a place that, well, you can habitually get to easily. And I think actually the routine of a certain place, you know, I sit in this chair every day to be with God. Because somehow my body and my mind know, oh, I'm going to have my appointment with God right now. I'm going to have this quiet, appointment with this quiet and busy time right now. So there's something good about that routine. And that repetitive place. I'm going to quote her in a little bit, but and, and some of you have heard my stories, but um, one of the people that I just admire for this very reason was Susanna Wesley. She was the mom of John and Charles, who were the Methodist founders of the Methodist Church a long time ago. And, and as I understand it, Susanna did her home in a very small, maybe even a one room, I'm not sure how small it was, but a very, very small house, Susanna had 10 children. All of you who are moms who have had children understand this picture very well. And in this small little house, she told her children that when she sat in the chair by the stove and pulled her apron over her head, she was going to go be with God. So you can find solitude if you want to. Is my only point. Wow, if Susanna could find it there, we can find it anywhere, right? You just got to decide you want to. Right, so you find a place, but then you have a posture. And you probably have already noticed, if you don't know me very well, that um, I'm kind of wiggly. And so um, for me, the posture includes sitting and walking. 
If you make Scott Henning sit in one place for too long, he will be distracted, I can assure you. Um, so if you want, you know, Christy and I found out that our best conversations when we go out on the lake in a little rowboat. Because I can row, and you know, in a rowboat, you sit and look at each other, you know, the person in back looks at the person rowing. So I can wiggle and she can talk, and I listen way better, you know. <laughs> so you've got to find out for you how it is, what it takes for you to be a better listener, all right? Because we've come to listen. That's what we come to the place of solitude for. We've come to be silent before God and his word. Oh, it's tricky. All right, so you have, so first of all, a place and a posture. And then I want to talk about the shift of focus because we're shifting from, what did the scripture say? I'm shifting from me to who God is. And that's tricky to do. So here's what I'll, I want to tell you what the ancients have taught us, what Christians before us have practiced. And they practiced this I don't think because there's anything magic about it. It's just because you, you don't forget it. You know, I forget my keys all the time in my wallet. You know, I get to Home Depot more times than I have to drive back home and get my wallet, you know. But um, so it's your breath. Because your breath is always with you, you know, as long as you're breathing. And I hope you are. Your breath is always with you. And so the ancients used this practice in, in their time of solitude of moving from this busy mind to focusing on their breathing. And you intentionally take some deep breaths. And you pay attention to them. And while you do that, you brought the scriptures along with you. Maybe as you've been reading all week, one phrase or something has spoken to you because you know God's speaking to something particular in your life through that this week. So you bring that passage with you, and you've got it in your lap, present. And as you move from your worried, anxious thoughts to focusing on your breathing, then you go from breathing, and you begin to read over, maybe a few times, these scriptures that are in front of you. And you let those become the new focus in this time of quiet. And now, as you're there, you begin to open your living to God. You begin to chew like grandpa's old cow and meditate on this scripture and what it was that God led you to bring this to your attention. Maybe, maybe there's a broken relationship and somehow the scripture spoke into that. Maybe it's a decision. And the, and the Lord's using these scriptures today as you're in the moment of decision. You say, Lord, I don't want to make a decision out of my wants, out of my human desires out of, no, I want to make a decision in response to you. And, and so you let it now begin to penetrate. And you mull over it. You meditate. You contemplate. You ponder. What is God say? How is, his, how is his word going to affect my living? Maybe it's not even that right now it's speaking to something urgent and specific in your life. It's just speaking to a new character. God wants to grow in your life. You go, wow, I know God wants, you know, one of the characters I know God wants to continue to grow in Scott Henning is that he isn't anxious. I mean, I'm a frazzled bundle of nerves all the time. And I know he doesn't want that in me. So I continue to ponder that. Lord, how does that work? So, so we ponder the scriptures because they're going to come alive in our living. They're going to saturate my inner person so that they flow out of who I am. Remember, Jesus said, it's not what you eat that changes you. It's what comes out of your inner person. 
And so my life comes out of this inner person that I'm growing with God. And that's what I'm working on in these quiet and busy moments. Okay, so we got two things, the two practices and the soul craft. First Bible reading and a reading that is intended to um, be lived. And so I'm paying attention to how I'm going to live in responses. And now this time of quiet, unbusy thinking so that I can let it saturate and into my core being so that it will flow out of my core living. So the third practice is a practice of um, inviting sacred companions, let's call them. The ancients called them spiritual directors, but I'm leaving those words behind because as my friend Dylan, when I talked to Dylan, the drummer, about it, he said, oh, that sounds like somebody who gets paid to do that, you know? Or maybe they're a spiritual guru. Whereas a companion is just another ordinary Christian. And that's really the intention of what we're talking about. So, would you read the scriptures again with me? This comes from James chapter 5, um, verse 16. Ready? Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. Spiritual companionship. Um, wow, this is, this, these are incredibly special relationships. Um, and, and spiritual companions, we employ them in our life um, for a very specific reason. And that is because all of us are short-sighted. I'm short-sighted about my own life. I'm, I'm subjective about my own life. I don't have good objectivity about who I am, you know? And so I invite others into my life who are objective about that, and I can speak to them about my life. Now, in unpacking this, this common practice, it says, confess your sins. Can I talk about that just for a minute? Um, I want to talk about it because I think, for whatever reason... The word sin, well, it just, you know, it's one of those that electrifies everything, right? What does it mean? What do we talk about when we're talking about sin? I think the simplest way to say it is we're talking about anything that alienates. Anything that gets in the way, that breaks a relationship. And you know, by the way, Scripture's pretty clear that if your relationship with another human being is broken and it's your fault, Probably your relationship with God isn't so good right now either. Remember what Jesus said? If you go to worship and you want to bring a gift to God and you know you're not right with your brother and sister, forget worship. Go get right with your brother and sister. That's how important um, our relationships and our living is. Okay? So, um, so this, so, we're, so, sin. Well, I mentioned Susanna Wesley. I want to turn your attention to something she wrote, and your little credit card that was laying on your seat on the back side of it has a quote from her. And by the way, I saw my friend Carla Goodman last week, and Carla told me that in her bathroom, she still has this quote hanging on her mirror, and that she looks at it every day. Um, so for some of you, it's not new. It's not new for me either. And I really haven't come here to tell you something new, actually. Nothing I says is new. I stand on the shoulders of other people. But this has been essential in my living. Um, and I think it 
you will find it essential too. Because it gives us a definition of sin that I think takes it out of the woo-hoo and brings it into reality. Are you ready with me? So there's the first word is whatever, which is the most inclusive word I can think of, right? Whatever. All right. Here she goes. Susanna gets at us now at her definition. Whatever weakens your reason, whatever weakens my reason, that's sin to me. Whatever impairs the tenderness of my conscience, that quiet voice that the Holy Spirit uses to guide me, if that's impaired, if that's all not clear, right? Whatever obscures my sense of God, whatever takes off my relish, we don't use that word so much anymore, you got to want it. It's got that. It's passion. Relish has passion in it. You can't live without it. Whatever takes off your relish for spiritual things. And listen to this one. This one's huge. Whatever increases the authority of your body over your mind. That thing is sin to you. However innocent it may seem. Oh my goodness. You know, Susie, you know what Susanna does for us, the favor she does for us? It's so easy for me in my self-rationalization to say, oh, I know those, those monsters over there, they're sinners. And it's very easy for me to overlook that little thing that seems innocent in my life, but that is impairing or is weakening or is obscuring or it's taking off my relish. Or is increasing the authority of my body over my mind. So you see, we've read the scriptures. We've been meditating on them. We've been letting them speak into our living. And we've been evaluating our life. There's a relationship because between now God's word and my living that I'm, I'm using it to evaluate. And I'm, I'm becoming aware of things in my life that are weakening my reason, that are obscuring my sense of God, that are impairing my spiritual sensitivity. And it's those things I now come to my spiritual companion with. And I'm willing to tell them the truth, and here's why. Because I want to live my life like Jesus would want me to live my life. And nothing short of that. I'm going to tell you about soul care companions. And uh, I wrote these, this phrase and I thought a lot about it. And this is what I say. Give someone who they themselves, I added some words there, give someone who practices soul craft themselves. That second phrase is really important. Who practices soul craft themselves. Permission to guide the care of your soul. All right, so I got to tell you my story. So I first became aware of this practice, these three practices, and put together in this puzzle 
in the year 1976. It was a couple years ago. I had moved, within that year, about six months before, I had moved to a new town. And um, I was attending a church, and so I started looking around, and I approached some of the men I knew and talked to them about the idea of them being my spiritual director. That's what the ancients called it. They called it having a spiritual director, and I didn't, hadn't grown to use new words yet. And I couldn't find a man in my church who wanted to have that relationship with me. So I ended up finding two old women. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Esther Ebel was 84 and Emma Friesen was 77. I was 19. And my friends all said, Scotty, what are you doing hanging out with those old ladies? And I would go to their house having read the scriptures, having taken time to think about them, and we would talk about what God was speaking to me about. And I would open my life to them and let them speak into my living. They became my most intimate friends because I was honest with them. Over the years, I've continued. I've moved, so I've had to find new people. People have moved, so I've had to find new people. People have died. My sisters, Emma and Esther, are long gone by now They're with the Lord. But today, there's an older man that I meet with every week, and there's a younger man that I meet with every week. Each of them have their own perspective on life and on what it means to be a Christian, and I learn from them. And I bring to them my life, what I hear God saying to me and my brokenness that I'm still working on. Here's why. The loneliest moment a Christian has is when they're alone with their sin. You will be no lonelier in your life than you are alone with your sin. But when you have a companion to whom you can tell the truth, there is no better companion than that. Now, there's a qualification, and I wrote it in my phrase there, and I've had to learn this because I've chosen some people to be sole companions, and they didn't work out. So there is, there is a prerequisite for a good soul companion. And that prerequisite is humility. If they are not humble enough themselves to practice soul craft, if they don't have someone, whether it's you in mutual relationship or someone else, who they've submitted their soul to and they're willing to confess their sin to, don't bother. They'll be surprised, first of all, when a real sinner shows up. By the way, that's why I came today, so you could see one. <laughs> but they'll also be arrogant in pretending that they don't have sin in their life. I have had someone that I thought was a mature Christian, I chose as a sole companion, and they told me that they didn't have sin in their life anymore. They're like, hmm, you're deceived. Now, Jesus died for your sin, I understand that. But you're still a person in the process of becoming Christ-like. 
And you see, my goal in my life, your goal, our goal, all of us who have trusted Jesus, our new goal is to no longer live our lives out of our own personal wants and desires and passions, but to be directed by God's word and to live as much like Christ as we possibly can. That's my goal. That's your goal. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so as you choose a soul companion, look for someone who is humble, who recognizes that they too are in process, still becoming. And yet, look for someone who, though they're still in process and still becoming, is as hungry as you are to live every day with every person in every relationship and every decision as Jesus would live. Our goal is to live Christ-like here and now in real time. Okay, wow. Those three things, I don't know where you're at and listening. In some ways, they're, wow, they're, they're lofty. They really are. But I want... And especially as you think about those persons you choose. Well, it has to do with the church you chooses. Any Christian relationship you choose. I want, to, I want to just keep us from making an error. And the error is, don't look for a rock star Christian. The sacred happens in the ordinary. God's sacred, sacred work happens with people who have whiskers and warts. Here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my pastor, I never knew him. He died before I was born. This is what he said. Often, Christian community has broken down because it sprung from a wish dream we are likely to bring with us a very definite idea of what life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. We must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves. My dear friends, Sacred moments happen with ordinary people among ordinary people. But that doesn't make them any less important. As you look for a soul companion, look for someone's humble. Look for someone who recognizes their own need to continue to become like Jesus. But also look for someone who wants nothing more, nothing less than to live every day every decision, every moment in response to him. So this is, this is it today. There are three things in the practice of soul care. Curing the soul. Bible reading, quiet, unbusy moments, and sacred command, companions. And I can tell you, I am sure that I am I am the most blessed man in the world because I've had sacred companions. Because God's word speaks into my life and it's 
the guide when I let it be. And you will find that too. You too will find those as wonderful blessings for your living if you choose to practice them.